Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to SFP Now. eyes peer out through time, through space, to a land beyond imagination. These are the eyes of the tiger. Follow their gaze back, back to where legends first began, where fantasy is real and the land of the lost is rediscovered. Starring Patrick Wayne, Taryn Power, Jane Seymour. From producers Charles H. Schneer and Ray Harryhausen, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Hello and welcome to another episode of SFP Now here on Sci-Fi Pulse Radio. Um, we've got a very special guest with us today. Um, he is um, a BAFTA-nominated filmmaker and a writer, and he's um, written three exciting books that I think many sci-fi fans or fans of science fiction and fantasy would would enjoy. So I'd like to welcome John Walsh to the show. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ian. It's always good to uh, to come on and talk all things science fiction and and Ray Harryhausen. Well, indeed, um, and and that's something I forgot to mention is that you're actually a trustee of the uh, Ray Harryhausen Foundation as well. You know. Yes, so, that's right. So we, we, we'll probably ask about all that as we go. Um, but having read a bit about you, uh, you know, I've I've learned quite a bit that that you um, are a BAFTA nominated filmmaker, and you uh, got the nomination for a film that you did called uh, Tory Boy, which is a very interesting film. I actually watched it the other night um, to to sort of like uh, you know get 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 a bit more informed about you. So I think my first uh, question really was what what was it sparked your interest in filmmaking? Um, well, I'd always been. Um interested in animation so when i was at school my parents got me a super 8 camera and that was a film camera that you buy little cartridges of film for and i was doing my own little sort of claymations so similar to what nick park was doing but obviously not as successful or as complex so um once i sort of graduated out of that, that sort of animation i started doing live action and so on and then i was a bbc young filmmaker of the year when i was 15 wow. and then i went on to do my a levels and i was thinking wow could i really get a job in film and tv and I went to sort of an all Catholic boys school where the careers advice was just not um, not really that um, forward thinking, let's call it. And uh, so I asked there, you know, is there such a thing as a film school or anything like that? And they said, no, it's all pie in the sky. There's no such thing. Of course, I investigated and there were there were two film schools at the time. The London Film School it was called the London International Film School in those days. And then the National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield. And I applied to both. I was accepted at both. And I took a place at the London Film School And when I was 18. So just after my, I did my A-levels. And it was, um, it was interesting because I was the youngest person they'd ever accepted on the, on the course. And also as a post-grad course. So what was I doing there? 
<laughs> no, I didn't know anyone who was as old as mid twenties um, amongst my, you know, friends. And so I, I joined the film school when I was eighteen. Left two years later. Started directing professionally for television, and uh, and have been doing the same sort of ever since through commissioned work. So I pitch programs to different channels through my company Walsh Brothers, and uh, and have more or less done that over the years. But when I was at film school, one of the films I made was a short sixteen millimeter film with uh, Ray Harryhausen. So I went to his house, got to see his creature collection. And, uh, you know, became good friends. And then over the years, we, we shared lots of sort of um, film and TV sort of chats. And he was fascinated by how television worked because he hadn't really worked in television. And then when I was nominated for my first BAFTA, he was he kind of sent me a congratulations note and so on. And we stayed in touch over the years. And then in more recent times, I recorded commentaries for his films. Because unbelievably, Ian, most of them didn't have commentary recordings. And I asked him why that was. And he said, because nobody had really asked him. So we started with Clash of the Titans, the last film he made, and worked backwards. The myth. The magic. The mystery. The majesty. Destroy Argos! Let loose the last of the Titans. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents Clash of the Titans. About a year and a half or so before he died, he asked me to become a trustee of his foundation. Wow. And the foundation was a charity set up in the mid-80s. It looks after, as you can imagine, the creature collection, which are all of the models that you've seen on screen, but also the other paraphernalia, um, design work, um, admin paperwork, the moulds that the creatures were created from, and also test footage, test creatures, unmade films, and so on. So we estimate there's about 50,000 items in the Ray and Diana Harryhausen collection, making it the largest of its kind outside of the Walt Disney Company. Oh, well, that's amazing. And, you know, it's, it's actually, uh, as, as someone that's actually interested in film and television from the outside looking in, um, I often find that sort of stuff really, really, really cool to, to go and see whenever it's exhibited. And, like, uh, I, live in, I live in Altrincham, which is a, you know, town in, in, in Trafford. It's so, like, it's Greater Manchester, Far Greater Manchester. <laughs> and... Um, a few years back, they had a, an exhibit in the neighbouring town sale, and it was um, basically of um, of the of the of the people. I can't remember the names of them off the top of my head, but they did they did the Wind in the Wingles series back in the eighties. Foxgrove Hall, yeah, Foxgrove Hall, and they had an exhibit in sale, and I was actually amazed seeing sale because you know sale is such, such you know really small town in the scheme of things. It's not like it's a big city you know, sort of museum sort of thing. And uh, I remember go, you know, going and see it and I was having a really bad time at the, you know, at the time of seeing this. And uh, I just went in there and I spent about 10 minutes, 10, 20 minutes looking around at the exhibit. And it just, it just saw like, uh, you know, made, made my, my whole day better. So I was actually, you know, in a pretty, uh, pretty bad place uh, when, 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 when all that was happening, you know? So it was, uh, it was just so like, um, just that sort, just that sort of thing, just lifted lifted my mood in time. It was just brilliant. I think it's because it, we revisit part of our childhood when we see things that we recognise from television or cinema from the past. So we revisit a safer time, and sometimes that gives us comfort. Interestingly, though, Ian Cosgrove Hall were somebody that uh, Ray went on to collaborate with in the 1990s for an unmade project that's in my book, Harryhausen: The Lost Movies. So when you get to the end part, the uh, 1990s part, you'll get to see what he was up to with those folks. 
So we've, we've become kind of chums with the archive, the Cosgrove Hall archive. So there aren't many animation archives out there. And those that are have kept very little of their original materials. So it's always good to kind of uh, tip our hats to, uh, to other archives. And, it, you know, it's, it's almost a shame as well, because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the puppets, you know, aside from Nick Park, who, who's still going Wallace and Gromit and, and the, uh, the, the occasional animated film, you know, with, with, with stop motion, there's not many people still around still doing it. Well, you know, it's, um, I'd, I'd argue the opposite point and say that there's more hours of stop motion animation happening now than any time Ray was working. So you have like Studio Leica, Kubo and the Two Strings. You have, um, you know, the films of um, that Tim Burton does, Frank and Weenie. There's the film Coraline um, so, and, and all the Aardman films. So I think stop motion has found a kind of a, a niche or a corner for itself. And it's back on television as well. There's children's animations and there's some commercials. So I, th- I think um, when Ray stopped animating in the early 80s, there wasn't as high a demand for it as there is now. And I think a lot of people are, are slightly tired of photorealistic computer animation, particularly mm. within children's animation. I think there's something to be said for more tactile stop motion puppets. Well, may, maybe maybe I, I'm seeing it from the point of view that it's not really talked about as much, um, perhaps. Um, mm. because I am familiar with Frank and Weenie and, and Car- Caroline, you know, sort of thing. Um, and um, I think The Nightmare Before Christmas also used a bit of stop motion as well, didn't it? That's right. Of course, uh, my main reason for wanting to speak with you um, was because of your, your book, you know, the, the Harry Howes and the Lost Movies. Um, and, um, and, and obviously you've, uh, you've talked a little bit about your friendship with, with, with Ray. Um, but, you know, you, you said that you, you, you recorded uh, some commentaries with him. Um, for, for, for films is, is, is there a boxer out with his commentaries um, some of the commentaries we've licensed I think First Men in the Moon we licensed um, and there's a company called Indicator Powerhouse Films that have put together some of Ray Harryhausen's films so there's some of the commentaries on some of those DVDs but not all of them are out there and Clash of the Titans for example is not available yet neither is I think Golden Voyage of Sinbad or Sinbad in the Eye of the Tiger so um we are kind of keen to do something. We, we are in talks to put all of Ray's films together into one box set. And the reason that's never been done before is because they're owned by three different studios. So about 80% of them are with um, Columbia Pictures, which is now owned by Sony. And uh, the other percentage, how much did I say? 80, now I'm doing the math thing. 80, the other 15% is with uh, Warner Brothers. And then the last 5% is with Studio Canal. So we have good relations with all those folks. And we're, we're in the process. We've got an agreement where we can we can bundle all of those films together for the first time in a magnificent box set. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that because I'd really like, I've been looking on Amazon uh, for, for, for Harry House and stuff. And I just can't find a, a, a definitive set that actually has commentaries and, and stuff like that and it, it'd be, be, be something that I'd love to add to my connection. Well we're kind of conscious that we don't want people to keep having to buy the same thing over and over so we're going to raid the Foundation's archive, put as much new content in there as possible. The short film that I made when I was at film school which people have seen bits of, that's going to be part of that set. Um, all of the commentaries and lots of test footage so we're finding stuff all the time in the archives. We have test animation footage of Pegasus, Medusa and the Kraken and uh, we're finding interesting audio recordings, Ian. Um, so Bernard Herman, the famous composer, did about four films. Mm-hmm. Did four films, right? Yeah, I think Charles he did Schnell the. Uh, I think Bernard Herman did the score to Around the World in Eighty Days, um, as well as um, 
some some of the scores for the Harryhausen movies as well. So yeah, he was um, quite prolific. You know, his um, uh, Journey to the Centre of the Earth that was that was one of his as well. So he did like that sort of genre. So it wasn't just Hitchcock he worked with. But so, so we'd we'd like to include as much of as much new content as possible, so people don't feel they're just buying the same old thing. And we're hopeful, we have our fingers crossed at this end, for a 4K remaster of uh, Clash of the Titans. So um, we, we are literally in the process of um, all of that. This, the agreement has been made, let's put it that way. So now we just got to do the, uh, the easy bits of getting it restored. Okay. Um, so that's very exciting. That's awesome news. That's awesome news. As soon as that's out, I'm probably going to be... Um... I'm going to be hitting hitting my uh, wallet to sort of like uh, to to get that added to my collection, you know. That's it. Um, you know, people are saying that physical media is kind of on the way out, and that's partly true. If you go to like Marks and Spencers or Sainsbury's or wherever you get your weekly shop, you find that there isn't sort of DVDs around magazine areas anymore. But um, what has grown are the sort of um, the prestige releases. So mm-hmm. if we think of Studio Canal's release for Total Recall or Flash Gordon, it was like a house brick. I mean, you, you know, you, it's like the, the thickness of two Argos catalogues uh, because it has soundtracks and booklets and whatnot. And I think that market is booming. But that only works if the film is, is, is of interest and also if the restoration is exceptional. I recently bought um, the 4K remaster of Dawn of the Dead and a friend of mine, Simon Marbrook at Final Frame, was involved with putting that together. And it's superb and it's really, really thick. I mean, it's like that thick and it costs like £100 or so. Well worth it. Three versions of the film on there, plus the soundtrack, bits that haven't been released, lots of content. And I think fans will pay for those sorts of things. Um, and they have been. Doctor Who as well. Doctor Who's been re-released yet again after VHS and DVD. Here we go with the Blu-rays. Um, there are over 70 movie projects mentioned in, 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 in the book that you've written that uh, Harryhausen never got to complete. Um, now, as a, as, a fan, as a fan yourself, are there any of those films that you would love to have seen? Yes. I mean, we, we recently ran a poll in the foundation to find out the, uh, which of Ray's lost films would, um, would fans most want to see. And, and a lot of the, the ones that I want to see are the, are the ones that fans wanted to see. So there's the, uh, there's the unmade sequel to Clash of the Titans called Force of the Trojans. Um, the one that always comes out on top, though, is War of the Worlds. In the late 1940s, Ray was working on his version of War of the Worlds, very different to George Powell's. So his Martian invaders would have showed the land with tripods um, rather than hanging as saucers on, on, on wires. Um, so I think Ray's War of the Worlds definitely um, forced the Trojans. And then there was um, a couple of other Mars projects. There was John Carter of Mars, which, mm-hmm. of course, Disney made there quite recently. But Sinbad Goes to Mars, which was going to be made after Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger in 1977. But they did Clash of the Titans instead. And Columbia was interested in financing Sinbad Goes to Mars. And although at the time people thought, oh, that's odd. How could you have Sinbad on Mars? Because he's such an ancient character. And, and, and you know, what, what would be the, the conceit to get him there? And of course, if you know the film Stargate and how it works with the pyramid and the transporter, effectively, it was going to be like that. And of course, that was a great success, Roland Emmerich in the 1990s. So it's a, it's a shame that Sinbad goes to Mars, wasn't, wasn't made. And we have great, great task work from uh, the designer Chris Foss. And Foss was working with uh, Ridley Scott on Alien at the time and with Alejandro Jodorowsky on his unmade version of Dune at the time. And so his designs for Ray's Bad Ghost to Mars are kind of quite influenced by those experiences he had at the time. So very industrial looking and they're fabulous. Great. And we have the original arts uh, pieces in the book 
and they've never been seen ever, ever. So it's when you see it in the book, it's like mm. first time ever. Yeah, I, I, I um I got up to I think I got up to the um Jason and the Argonauts last night. So I'm I'm sorry, I'm still in the sixties. Jason and the Argonauts, the classic story of an epic voyage that has been told and retold since the birth of Western civilization, now presented on the screen for the first time. Pull! Pull! Do your heart crack and your back break? Jason and his band of Argonauts, the mightiest warriors the world of adventure has ever known. You know, seeing seeing the artwork, the the uh, the the painting on the glass that 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 that, that he did, um, which was sadly never used um, in 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 the end product. Um, and you look at that painting; it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, just, yeah. Um, so many, you know. So there's not only the unmade films in there. There's the unmade sequences from the films he did make. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we've we've put everything in there, and almost every one of the films Ray had created all of his feature films had some elements of artwork for scenes that were either too expensive or technologically weren't possible at the time. Mm. So we've included all of those as well. It said in the book that he was a big fan of Burroughs and, um, you know, I can, I can actually see him, you know, I can actually relate to him being a fan of Burroughs because a lot of the Tarzan books, I don't think anyone has done Tarzan justice in, in film. It's always been sort of like... Uh, because in, in the books, they had him going through time portals and fighting dinosaurs and, and stuff like that. And, you know, when, when I learned that a few years ago, I thought of Ray Harryhausen and I thought, you know, I, I could actually see him doing something really, really cool with that. Um, if, if he, if he, you know, if he'd, if he'd ever had the opportunity and, and suddenly it never, never happened. Um, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering, um, he, he, um, the, you know, he said that in the book that he, he could never get the get the license into the to 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 the boroughs because the boroughs estate uh, were as, asking for an exorbitant fee. What what kind of fees were they asking for? Um, it would have been around about half a million dollars, which is which is an incredibly large fee to be asking in this sort of sixties and even in the seventies. Because if you take this as an example, Ian, uh, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad in nineteen. 19- 73 was shot for $900,000. So it was shot for just under a million dollars. So you couldn't really go and expect to get the rights um, for a novel or for a character for half a million dollars. It's way too much. And if, if they did, it, it would have meant that money then would have had to have come out of the production budgets. So it might have meant a, a, a less exciting film with less locations or less sequences and so on. So I, I think in a way the Burroughs people were so cautious of having um the adventures on the screen it was their way of saying no you know by offering uh out a, a, an option that was too hot for most people to handle that way they could stay that they're in business and they can be talking to people but the price is too high because i don't really think at that time they were ready um and then unfortunately when the film did come out john carter of mars it wasn't received well i think it's a very good film i and I think it's pretty faithful to the book as well. I, I just think it's a terrifically well. People said to me, "Oh, it's terrible. It's like Flash Gordon." And I was like, "Hang on, hang on a minute. There's two things wrong with that." So I went to see it, and I was like, "You're right. It is like Flash Gordon, and it's very good. Thank you very much." Um, it was. I was disappointed that the theatre was virtually empty when I went. Anyone who's listening to this um, should, I, I, you'd agree, and should uh, 
should download on Disney Plus, I think, has it, um, and watch the film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think the problem was with that with that film is it was just marketed entirely the wrong way. Um, and I think I had, had Disney marketed it in, in a different way, um, it might have done a lot better, maybe. Possibly. You know, it's, 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 it's tricky. You know, Disney are the kings for marketing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. You know, a lot of people who see it say they really like it. But then I know a lot of people who see it say they don't like it. Um, and I think you just need a bit to watch that film. But, um, you know, as is often the case, you know, there's films like Baron Munchausen, which people hated at the time, still hate now, but I always loved. Mm. <laughs> so I think it's, I don't know if it's a quirk, if it's something broken in my head where I like films that other people perhaps don't. I like Howard the Duck as well. So um, <laughs> I have people switching off now. I do apologise. Your ratings are probably going down. As I said, Howard the Duck is about to get 4K release from Universal Pictures, which I'm thrilled by. Um, but a lot of people might be horrified by it. I got to admit, um, to, to, to be one of the in crowd, and I'm not going to edit this out, um, um, but to be one of the in crowd, you always say I hate Howard the Duck, but it's actually a guilty pleasure. <laughs> it is a guilty pleasure. I mean, there's so many things about that film. I love the little costume the guy was in. I thought it worked really well. I wasn't a big fan of the comic strip. So if people do know the comic strip, they probably think it's the wrong thing and it's sacrilege. But as a film, I thought it was great fun. It wasn't meant to be serious. I think George Lucas at the time, or a few years later, said it was more like a teenage mutant Ninja Turtles take. It was more of a kind of a comedy adventure. And, you know, there's some great animation. Phil Tippett, who was a great stop-motion animator who worked on The Empire Strikes Back, the Asset Walkers and the Tauntauns. He created a lot of the effects in that picture. Um, there's a lot of fun in there. Um, there's some questionable stuff between um, Howard and the, and the female lead. I think it's Lee Thompson, isn't it? Um, I think it's a great film. It's great fun. You know, it doesn't have any particular message or it isn't saying anything in particular. I think for fans of the Marvel Universe, if they want to kind of look back at other Marvel adventures that maybe didn't land as successfully, then it's definitely worth a look. And I think Universal giving a 4K remaster to it actually says they have faith in that project and realise that there is a there is a, uh, a fan base for it out there. Mm. I was speaking to my publisher and he, he was, they were saying to me, what other books would you like to write? And I said, Howard the Duck, the making of. And they looked at me like, mm, is he joking? Maybe he's joking, and I let them think maybe I'm joking, but I don't think I was. Um, we've, we've mentioned we've mentioned this in passing, uh, but you've also did a book um, about Flash Garden, which got released last year. What plaything can you offer me today? The planet Earth. What's happening? It's an attack. Pathetic Earthlings. Who can save you now? my lucky day was that was that deliberately released in time for the 40th anniversary did you um did, did you did you actually plan that out so it land for the 40th well the answer is both yes and no so what happened was um i'd written harry house and the lost movies thinking that would be my my only book and you know i was happy to write it i was very grateful to the folks down at titan books who've been very supportive and supported ray years ago when he re-released uh, um, the f film fantasy scrapbook. So um, I said to them, oh, this is this is great. You know, you've done a great job. And they said, your book is selling really well. It's going to a second print run. Would you like to do another? And I was like, oh, uh, oh, another book or another Harryhausen. They said, well, what would you like to do? And this was um, around sort of mid-2019. And uh, was it mid-2019 or mid-2018? I always get my years confused now because of COVID. 
Mm. Um, no, it was 2019, yes. And so I said to them, um, next year, 2020, I said, it will be the 40th anniversary of Flash Gordon, did you know? And they were like, yeah. And I said, well, that would make a good book, wouldn't it? And they were like, yeah. And I said, well, should we make the book? And they were like, yeah, but. And I was like, oh, here, here comes the but. They said, we've tried to make this book on the 30th anniversary and the 35th anniversary, and we couldn't do it. And I said, oh, why is that then? Um, quite naively. And they said, because the rights for it, um, the rights for the character and the film, they described as being like a hornet's nest. They were all kind of tied up. So the film character is owned by King Features, which is part of the Hearst yep. publication empire. And both companies still exist. Uh, the film was made by Universal Pictures, and they still exist. It was produced by and owned by Dino De Laurentiis, who sadly has passed away. And his interests, his kind of legal interests in the film have passed to somebody else. And the, the, what's called the library title, so that means the physical assets of the film roles, the, the negative and so on, are with the French company Studio Canal. And Studio Canal owned a lot of Dino De Laurentiis's projects. So I was like, oh, OK. I said, well, here's, here's the thing. If I can get the rights, can I write the book? And they were like, yeah, sure. <laughs> I was like, OK, I'll go and get the rights. So it took me eight months to get everyone sort of... Um, around the table and to talk about how they'd see it and how I saw it and what we could do. And meanwhile, the clock is ticking because December 2020 is the 40th anniversary. And although you can, of course, bring it out the following year on the 41st anniversary or the 42nd, I'm because I work in TV, I know how important dates are to people. You know, when it's the 25th anniversary or the 50th anniversary, whether it's for Doctor Who or whatever it might be, people really want to hit that date. So I kind of had this clock ticking in my head. So I was thrilled when all the parties agreed to it. They'd seen my other book and they thought, well, if it's going to be like that, let's do it. And then I got the shock of my life, Ian. We'd signed it. We're going ahead. Um, I knew Mike Hodges from before. I'd met him before a few times. And so I knew that I could get Mike on board and he was he was really cooperative. And I knew there was lots of actors and so on. But the, the shock of my life came when I said, right, let's have a look at all the pictures. And they were like, oh, um, I beg pardon? I said, the pictures, we need to do, this is a picture book more than a words book. Where are the pictures? And they said, well, this is the thing. There ain't none. And I was like, oh, and there was the usual front of house sets or lobby card sets and publicity shots and so on. There was those, but they're not the pictures we want to see. In. We want to see the behind the scenes shots of the models being made and being filmed. And when you open the making of Star Wars book, those are the kind of shots you want to see, but for Flash Gordon. Yeah. And they didn't exist. Um, in any archive, in any serious sense. So I spent then the rest of the time I had to write the book tracking down the good and the great in the fandom area. And there was a couple of major fans, um, one guy called Rolf Screedy, who basically had all of the weapons that you could imagine from the Flash Gordon universe in his own personal possession he collected over the years, and another gentleman called Bob Lindenmayer. And these were both American gents. Surprising because the film didn't do that well in America compared to Europe. And Bob had some wonderful photos and clips and bits and bobs. And so between all of us and other fan contacts they had, we found things, we repaired pictures. I spoke to actors who had continuity Polaroids. I spoke to special effects people who took their own shots on set that hadn't been seen before. And so it really was a kind of a, a, a collaborative community effort between the filmmakers, the fans, and those who'd worked on the picture and who love the film. And that's what the book is. So there are so many high-resolution shots that have never been seen before. The glass paintings, the models, the deleted scenes, the alternative endings, the storyboards for what should have been. 
uh, the expanded film, the new ending, or the ending as, as should have been, the character of Lion Man, who was more, more or less a Chewbacca character. So I went to Titan Books and I said, look, I've, I've found it. And uh, I said, I've also found something else. Um, the BFI, the British Film Institute, has hidden away in their archive Nicholas Rogue's development work on the picture that's never been seen, paintings he had created, production art. And I said, I want them for the book. And so Studio Canal teamed up with me and we rescued them from the BFI archive and they've been printed in the book in full colour for the very first time. So, of course, the story of the original director, why he left the picture, even it goes back as far as King Features when they had their appointment with a producer they met before Dino. And it was a very young George Lucas who wanted mm -hmm. to make um, his follow-up to THX 1138 and American Graffiti. He wanted to make Flash Gordon. And when he couldn't reach a deal, he went off and did it anyway, and called yeah. it the Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's, um, he's always the first to admit in, in interviews that, you know, he, he was very much influenced by... By the by, the movie serials of Flash Gordon and um, and and Buck Rogers and and stuff like that, as well as Seventh Samurai and you know, the thing about George Lucas and Star Wars and Flash Gordon is this: yes, all of that is true. He did say he's influenced by these films, and sadly, when Ray Harryhausen died, he said without Ray Harryhausen, there would likely have been no Star Wars. However. He went and created Star Wars, taking, if you like, all of the characters and scenarios from Flash Gordon. You've got Flash, who's Luke Skywalker. You've got Prince Baron, who's, who's Han, Han Solo. Solo. You've got Clytus, who's Darth Vader. You've got Ming, who's the Emperor. You've got the Princess. You've got um, Lion Man, who is effectively Chewbacca, although he was cut from the final film. You've got the wise old uh, Dr. Zarkov, which is... Uh, Obi-Wan. Obi. Now, if you fast forward to 1978... George Lucas took NBC television to court, arguing that Battlestar Galactica was a ripoff of his Star Wars. And it's like, well, hang on, that's less of a ripoff of Star Wars than Star Wars is a, um, a, an imprint of Flash Gordon. So what's going on here? Yeah, and, and the original Battlestar Galactica, they, they didn't do this so much in the uh, remake, uh, but the original Battlestar Galactica was so like, um, also partly inspired by Von, Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. Absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. You know, I love that original series. I think it's superb. Yeah, absolutely superb. I, I still oh. like it over the over the remake. To oh, me too. I can't watch the remake. Just tell you, we're old men, you see, and we're old, you see. If we had anything about us and we weren't so old and horrible, we'd love the remake. <laughs> I find the remake just, just washes right over me. I just, it's, it looks great and everything, but oh, I love that original. I even like Galactica 80 over the remake. <laughs> So, you know, but I'm the guy who likes Howard the Duck, so you can't take what I have to say with any any credence. Yeah, I mean, you know, I bet you had a lot of fun doing the Smash Garden thing, though. I don't, by what you've been saying there about all the rights issues and stuff like that, it sounds like a, a journalistic version of an episode of 24. You know, with the clock ticking to the anniversary and you're trying to get all the information together, you could probably make a documentary film about that. <laughs> be quite well, I've done a, um, I, I kind of avoided doing a straight documentary. Uh, Lisa Downs, who's a friend, and she put me in contact with lots of other Flash people. She made a documentary called Life After Flash, and it follows the actor Sam Jones, where he talks about the career he could have had um, if it wasn't for things going wrong for him on Flash Gordon. But um, I have done a on um, on YouTube. There is a there is a playlist of Flash Gordon, the official story of the film vodcast series. Mm -hmm. I speak to Mike Hodges and Brian Blessed and others, and they, they give me sort of insights and stuff that doesn't appear in the book. So I do a, a, a episode about the restoration 
or about the new poster designs, because the book is only a couple of hundred pages. We could only get stuff in about the original film in there. So all the other stuff had to go elsewhere. Um, no, the temptation to do a feature doc is I have to avoid that because I do too many docs as it is. And uh, I need to just concentrate on the books. It's kind of you to say, but it was more like a, a crime podcast, true crime podcast, because some of the um, memories that people had, particularly performers, differed from the actual facts that I found out. Um, so I had to keep going back to people and getting their stories straight and getting them to repeat their stories so I could, as it were, straighten out the timeline, straighten out the uh, the, um, the official version, because this was licensed by King Features and Studio Canal. So they were relying on me to kind of get it right, tell it right. And that's why it says the official story of the film on the cover but um no i was thrilled it was a great exercise i got so excited every time i found a new picture um, or every time i was sent something or if i spoke to a special effects guy i spoke to the guy who did the matte paintings on the film a, a gentleman called rob sifo and i said to rob you know you don't happen to have any photos because i ask everyone this. oh sure i took some on set with this great medium format camera i was like do you have the picture still sure I was like, great, you know, for some people it was as easy as just asking. And then for others, it was it was, it was was more a case of trying to find what they had. But I spoke to Dino De Laurentiis' wife, Martha, who'd worked on many of his films. Um, and all of the surviving actors, of course, are in the book. And, and Mike Hodges, of course, the director. So it really is the definitive version. And, and it's the only book out there on Flash Gordon, which is nice. If you go onto Amazon, you'll see... Dozens of books on Star Trek and Harry Potter and Star Wars, all great books from great people. But it's just, there's, I don't know, there's only so many times you can skin that cat, surely. Mm, well, yeah, I mean, so like um, they've released DVDs of the films and TV series so many times. And um, I've only ever bought one set of them all because I just can't see the point in buying the same thing just because it happens to be in 4K. You know, I watch it on Netflix. <laughs> You know, it's just um, you know it's 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 like you say this is an oversaturation stuff i mean you know i'm, I'm still to get the uh flash garden set at some point i'm not even well, sure it's sold out there. you've left it too late i'm sorry to tell you and you've left it too late because mm. the, the the big one the big box set that you could barely fit in your mouth which is as thick as a house brick that sold out the day it came out yeah, so you'd have to go on eBay and pay like two hundred pounds for it or something. Well, at the time it came out, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to fit in the flat. <laughs> so, so I live in a small, small single right. bedroom flat. So, um, you know, space is a premium, and um, I've got all my guitars and stuff because I'm a musician. So all right, it's, yes. um, so it's uh, it's crazy. So I I'm, I have to be very very choosy and selective about what I do get um, on 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 Blu-rays because I just don't have too much space to to. Uh, to keep it um a question i got for you is who would you say you had the most fun interviewing you know for, for the flash garden book um gosh who was most fun um for me it has to be mike hodges because i'm a director as well and i recognize the issues that directors have with actors um and, and with keeping everything together so for me you know i had most fun and interest speaking to mike um, when I first met Mike, he was at the BFI in the green room and we were talking about how he got sacked from the Omen, Omen 2, Damien Omen 2. And, uh, um, so Mike was always most fun and we, we got on really well. But it was great speaking to the actors, you know, um, Melody Anderson. I spoke to Top Hole, Brian Blessed, of course, Sam Jones, who played Flash. Um, but the thing was, Ian, and you might find this when you read the book, a lot of what they say is already in the public domain. Mm -hmm. So we know a lot about how 
how they got the roles and what happened next and so on. So I try and keep that to a minimum and then try and put on new stuff. So what really happened with Sam and Dino, because they had a big bust up, what really happened when he got into a fight with football hooligans in London, Soho. So it was those stories I wanted to drill down into and get, get more information out of because the fans who will be buying this book will know some of these stories, but they won't know how far they go. I will always challenge someone who's working with me on a book because as a TV director, particularly for the BBC, you need to, to have um, you, your contributor needs to be robust. So you need to make sure that someone's not just saying something because they think that's what you want to hear. And particularly child contributors for television. If you're doing a program about homelessness and it's about homelessness from a child's point of view, they'll sometimes lay it on thick because they'll think you want the sob story. When in fact, that's not an accurate reflection of what their life is. It isn't all uh, vinegar. You know, there is, there is some, there is some honey too. Um, so I kind of had a bit of a sixth sense for this, particularly with actors. So I can kind of tell when the bullshit um, needle is kind of flicking away. Um, so that, that was interesting. It's great to kind of, to, to, to as it were, not so much right or wrong, but to, to get the official version out of everyone. Um, and, you know, people were good about that. They, they recognise that memories change over time. And if something goes unchallenged, then it becomes their truth. And if you repeat it at different conventions and got a good response, You're that becomes now. the truth you continue with. So, um, you know, Brian Blessed had said things to me that Mike Hodges had seen and said it wasn't true, even though he gets on well with Brian Blessed. It was Mike who kind of was that um, level of, of, um, of clarity that the book needed. And it's great. You know, if I was writing a book and all of the contributors had passed away, then it would be a lot of speculation and a lot of third party um, discussion. So I think we couldn't have waited till the 50th anniversary. You know, we we lost Max von Sydow at the beginning of the year and we were in touch with his family and so on at the time. So this really was the last opportunity to get an official version out there. And uh, it, it sold out uh, last year and it's in its second print run now. And so um, we're very happy because it's it's. I think Harry House and the Lost Movies is in its third print run. Mm-hmm. So uh, the big expectations now for the next book. So, uh, mm-hmm. well, the next book um, we can go into that now is um, is is it all about the, uh, the making of Escape from New York, um, which is uh, another classic eighties film. It's not the future we wanted, but the future that happened. Once a great city, now a high security prison. Designed to keep society's criminals in. But now, everything rides on getting one person out. Kurt Russell stars as Snake Plissken in John Carpenter's science fiction action classic, Escape from New York. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. What if I'm a little late? No more Snake Plissken. When I get back, I'm gonna kill you. New Line Home Video is proud to release the director's special edition of Escape from New York, starring Kurt Russell from New Line Home Video. I think it was set in, was it set in 1998, the film? I think 1997, yes. 1997, yeah. And it's strange how New York isn't even a prison yet, you know, sort of like it's... You know, if I think back to the sort of like uh, 80s when I first watched that film, 
Um, and I'm thinking it was set in 1997. Back then, 1997 seemed like a lifetime away. <laughs> and, oh, absolutely. And now yeah. we're like 23 years on from that. So it's, it's just so crazy. would you have seen that on, on VHS, Ian? I would have seen it on VHS. I, I would have saw it on a pirated VHS that my father would have bought home from work via a mate of yeah. his. Um, you know, although, you know, sort of like, um, I think I think the Statue of Limitations has probably run out on that now, so. Yeah. Oh, no, that's fine. I don't know anyone of our age who's seen it in the cinema, so I think it got a very limited UK cinema release because there weren't that many screens in, in, in the UK, and particularly in the early 80s, a lot of cinemas were having a bit of a tough time of it. So, but we wouldn't have got in anyway. I imagine you're a similar age to me, and we would have been too young. They would have flung you mm-hmm. out because it would have been an X certificate. So before the certification changed to, to numbers, they were letters, and X meant you had to be 18 or over in, mm-hmm. in, in this country. So we wouldn't have got in. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, back then, the only cinema we had was a, a single-screen cinema called the Tatton, which was in sale. And um, we very rarely went, really, because, um, you know, it was, you know, I'm from a working-class background, so... It would have been sort of like deemed as a bit bit of a treat and too expensive to actually attend the cinema um, regularly, certainly as regularly as I do now. Um, but yeah, what, what... the same for me and my brother. You know, we working class family. We rarely went. We'd go at half term maybe, or if it's summer holidays, but we wouldn't go every week. Like you know, some kids might have been fortunate enough. No one at my school was fortunate enough. But um, no, if you went to the cinema, you had to really make that choice of this is you know. A film you have to see is it really good so you were kind of checking with people and friends you couldn't really go and see a dud because um it was expensive you're right yeah mm-hmm. and um and often that'd be the only film you'd see you know so yeah you know so like um i remember seeing empire strikes back for the first time it was on holiday in real and mm-hmm. we walked in and we're about halfway through the movie but, oh wow but thankfully they let me stay uh, throughout the first half of the movie and the second bit so I could still see the whole movie so my my original viewing of, of The Empire Strikes Back was sort of like seeing the second half and then seeing the first half do you remember what scene you walked in on so what, where did you get to when you walked in on I, I think I think it was the tail end of the um, of the battle with the attack workers on, on Hoth so I oh, think okay. you know, it wasn't quite halfway it's probably about um, a, you 25 know, minutes in I'd say yeah 25-30 yeah. minutes 25-30 minutes in but, yeah, but um, I remember seeing it and being so disappointed that we, you know, coming late. But you know, yeah. thankfully the, the the people at the cinema were really understanding and let us stay for the, you know, to see what we'd not seen. Yeah. So so that was that was great. Um, and um, you know, it's another movie that Harryhausen was offered Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. So Ray was asked to work on some of the animation because George Lucas had some stop motion in the chess sequence for Star Wars that Phil Tippett had created. And for Empire Strikes Back, they'd asked um, Ray Harryhausen. I think it was more of a, more to do with the time and motion study. There was so much stop motion planned for Empire with the Asset Walkers, a couple of Scout Walker shots and, of course, the Tauntauns. But um, Lucas was funding this himself. So he would borrowed the money from banks in Europe and did the what's called a negative pickup where the studio agrees to buy it at the end if you make the film they've agreed to in the script, but you can fund it. And the reason he did it that way around is because you have more control of the film, also more control of the profits as well, mm-hmm. because essentially he'd owned the film thereafter. So it was difficult for Lucas to do directing 
and that complicated producing job. So he farmed out the directing to a good friend of his, Irving Kirshner, who's done a brilliant job. But yes, he asked Ray about the um, stop motion and how long it should take. But of course, the thing is, it's it's a difficult thing, isn't it? It's like um, you could ask different writers how long does it take to write a book? And, you know, I, I can trot one out pretty quickly because even if I don't feel like it, I can still work because um, sometimes I suffer from headaches. But if I do, I'll still go to work because I may as well have a headache do something rather than have a headache and sit in a darkened room so you know it depends who you ask other people might say it'll take me years to write a book um so i think he just wanted a sense from ray harryhausen how long it should take and or could take and he was asked to be involved but of course ray was busy with uh, clash of the titans at the time but we have a great shot in the book that's never been published before of ray as industrial lice and magic with some a couple of years glasses. after empire strikes back but, but meeting up close what the original torn torn model and uh, I think it's literally only about two or three years after the shoots. So that's fabulous to have that in there, courtesy of the folks down at ILM, Industrial Ice and Magic. But, um, you know, if we think of the year that Escape from New York came out, it was also the year of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. It was the year of Dragon Slayer, the Great Muppet Caper, um, um, the American Werewolf in London. So there was lots of um, fabulous films at Omen 3, which I'm a big fan of the original Omen trilogy. I think Omen 3 is great too. Yeah. I think so, Empire came out the year before, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, so 1881. Um, yeah. And yeah, I love the Omen trilogy as well. Um, so I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, I love, I love, I love the second one and the third one. Um, probably the best out of the Omen films. <laughs> yeah, um, they're, they're a great trilogy. They kind of really work together. Um, but so um, it was it was on my wish list, really, Escape from New York. And I knew that it'd make a great book. And there hadn't been a book about it. And so um, luckily, as, as it would as it would pan out, Studio Canal, who co-owned Flash Gordon, fully owned Escape from New York fully. And uh, we got on so well doing Flash Gordon. They were happy that I was the right fit to do this book. And we did it. And I finished it. And I've seen the layouts. And it's off to the printers now. So it'll be in shops on the 28th of September. So um, I've had to do it in, in private and in secret for various reasons. So I, I had to sign two NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, and quite rightly because of there's, there's issues around the, the rights on the picture and, and we didn't want someone bringing out an unofficial spoiler book. As sometimes happens, people bring out their own unofficial version um, and that can get complicated for everyone and it can ease into sales. This book that's been created by Titan is very, very expensive. So you can't afford to have someone coming along it's a bit like two Capote films came along at mm. once. Was it three Robin Hood films came along? Patrick Bergen did one, and oh, yeah, uh, Kevin Costner, and then you had Men in Tights. Surprised there wasn't a Muppet version as well. Um, so I don't know what it is about studios when they think someone will do one of those as well. I mean, it's, a, it's the last thing you want to do is do something that someone else is doing. But I don't know, people do that, don't they? Um, but with something like this, an unofficial book could ride the crest, if you like, of the official wave. But of course, my, only my one has the original photography, unseen photography, new interviews, um, deleted scenes, everything that Flash Gordon had in a sense, but in this book. But it's a much smaller film than Flash. Flash cost around $33 million. This cost $6 million, mm-hmm. was shot much more quickly. And there aren't many special effects in the film, but those that are there are very effective. And we've got never before seen behind the scenes shots of how they were put together and so on. So it's kind of images and information that you and I would want to see, Ian. I don't think it's for a casual viewer. It's for someone who's really wants to know, you know, what really went on. 
Um, and that's why I tighten the grace of doing these books, because they allow writers to kind of really dig into the history of something and find something new. You know, if there's something new to be said or to be seen, even better. Absolutely. I mean, you know, Escape from New York, it's, it's, it's up there as in, in my top favourite films. Um, and I think, I think it's because of the fact that it's on a budget and it's kind of like uh, it's film where Ness is very much more. And, and the soundtrack is absolutely stunning. You know, no, it's amazing. You know, we, I spoke to Alan Howarth and John Carpenter about how they created all that music. And it was out of necessity because there wasn't a budget to do an orchestral score. John had been successfully doing scores for his previous films. It was the biggest budget that John Carpenter ever had. His previous film, The Fog, was his previous biggest budget. And that was $1 million. So, you know, um, John wasn't used to having this size of budget. So for him, it was a lot of money, six million. And he really spent it well with Dean Cundy, the director of photography, who spoke to me at length about creating a new camera system, a new way of photographing in low light without there being lots of grain in the film. And it's recently been restored by Studio Canal. There's a 4K version of Escape from New York. And you can really see it was so well worth taking the time in terms of composition and the lenses they used and just the atmosphere of that film. It feels as if it's set within its own, a bit like a Harryhausen film. It's like hermetically sealed within its own environment. Um, it would be very hard to remake or do a sequel to. And I think Escape from LA kind of proves that you can't just crack it open with those characters, mm. supplant them somewhere else, have the same music and director and get the same feel. Still a good film, Escape from L.A., but it's not a patch on New York and, of course, wasn't particularly successful at the time. Yeah, I mean, they there was actually a talk a couple of years ago about doing a remake of Escape from New York. Um, thankfully, it never, never happened, but um, I'm kind of not holding breath. I think, they, I think they will eventually get round to it. They'll figure out some way to do it um, because it, it seems to be that... Hollywood has a case of remake-itis more so than it ever has before <laughs> because, oh, like, you've seen all sorts of TV properties get remade. Like, you know, you've had MacGyver and they've remade that and, and that's just ended the new series of that. Um, they've remade Hawaii Five-0. They've remade Magnum. Um, all of these 80s shows and, and 80s films. Uh, there was even talk a few years ago about the remaking Highlander. That's a book I'd love to see. You know, well, you know, the, the um, I can tell you that uh, I can't say too much. I get myself shot, but um, the talks of a remake are 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 back on, and the chances of it happening now are are as great as they've ever been. It's one of the reasons I had to be careful about the book was because uh, it's now a live property again, um, and it's a simple reason that you spend more than fifty percent of your marketing money on what's called brand recognition. So one of the reasons, for example, Donald Trump didn't spend much to become president was because people recognized him from television. And if you knew him from television, you knew the, he's the guy that runs businesses, etc. Whether you liked him or not, you knew that's who that was. So a remake show, you're already bringing an audience with you because they'll know Magnum. I mean, I know Magnum as an ice cream. But, you know, if you remember him with the mustache, it's a TV show with the Hawaiian shirts. So if you were remaking something for an audience that recognizes it, then you're halfway there to getting the audience through the door. Sometimes the hardest thing is to get people in, get people through. Um, you know, with Marvel films now, you only have to say it's Marvel and people are queuing up because people know it's going to be of a certain high standard and it's going to have all these wonderful set pieces. But there was a time when 
Marvel films couldn't get finance. You know, um, Ray Harryhausen was offered the first Marvel film by Stan Lee. Yeah, I read it's that. It's in my book. So um, you, you, you'll get to see that when you get, when you get to there. Um, but now we don't think of it like that. So I can kind of sympathise with networks who want to remake things. And, you know, Escape from New York is a good film. So why not, why not give it a go? There's talk of Howard the Duck coming back. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Dark Crystal came back. That was unsuccessful theatrically. Although I love the Dark Crystal, it came back on Netflix and was um, it was great, but it was unsuccessful on Netflix. Yeah, it was, it was great. You know, it was really, it was really uh, faithful to the um, to, to the film as well. I think it was a prequel. Sure. Um, I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it, it's strange. I mean, it's you know. It would be nice if we had, you know, we could have a few more original ideas come out now. You know, well, look at Harryhausen's lost movie books. If there's any producers listening to this, um, uh, ring me, find me, because Harryhausen the Lost Movies has got all of these projects in it that Ray never made. We've got great artwork and we've got scripts in some cases. Um, I've put uh, Force of the Trojans back into official development, so mm. it would be great to get that made. Um, so there's bound to be a streamer out there who's got maybe some Bezos money from lovely um, Prime Video. I have stuff on Prime myself. So, um, you know, maybe Amazon Studios would like to fund Force of the Trojans. I'd be happy. I'd be happy to do that. Maybe uh, we could have a character in there who's uh, who's called Prime. You know, we could replace Boobo with an hour called Prime. You know, that'd there's nothing fun. I wouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fun. Um, that that was actually one of my next questions. Is um, you know, as 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 a as a trustee of the foundation, is a foundation just about preservation and education, or is it likely to uh, maybe you know try and get some of these lost projects into production somehow if they if they could well, uh, yeah. find the partners. Yeah, well, we set up a film company called Ray Harryhausen Films Limited, um, imaginatively, and uh, Force of the Trojans has been the first one we started developing. <clears throat> so the reason the film didn't happen the first time round in 1984 was because the script was quite complex, and it was answering the critics from Clash of the Times who said that Ray had played fast and loose with mythological um, stories. So this time round, for Force of the Trojans, they stuck um, religiously to the original stories but of course when they weave them together it doesn't quite work as a three-act narrative <clears throat> so there's too many human characters so I've, I've managed to strip that back and make it much more um, of a lean narrative in the way that Clash of the Titans was so we have that we have the full screenplay we have a new screenplay as well and we have test um, artwork and no test footage but we have some sculptures as well so I think that's the one that's got the most likely chance of happening but the reason we would do that is not simply just to make films to make money we would like rather than to have the Harryhausen exhibition placed in different places around the world at different venues which is great we're doing something with the Oscars Museum and with George Lucas Museum as well it's currently at the National Galleries of Scotland and we'll be there until next year we want a permanent home for the exhibition so to have a Ray Harryhausen Museum is the ultimate goal so to be part of a successful film or film franchise will make that uh, that reality that a reality for us because you know we're talking millions, tens of millions of pounds mm-hmm. to have a permanent base where we would have a wing of the museum where visiting exhibitions could come. So we could host maybe a section at uh, Studio Ghibli, um, Leica Studios, Artman Animations. We'd like to have a, an animation a film school in there. We would show race films. So it'd be much more of a cultural centre within which it would house the Harryhausen collection in its entirety. 
Um, so that's kind of our, our very grand scheme. So if I live long enough and we can make enough money from enough films, then myself and Vanessa Harryhausen, Ray's daughter, who's also a trustee, that's what we want to do. You could also have a Harryhausen restaurant in there, um, you know, with uh, made-up recipes such as Kraken pie. <laughs> Why not, you know, reduce a souffle, you know, it, it can all be in there, you know. <clears throat> you know, when we think about it, you know, Ray Harryhausen was a commercial Hollywood filmmaker who lived in London. He was a film producer, and people think of him as an artisan, which he was, and a great animator, which he was. But he was also a Hollywood producer. And people think, like, hmm, Hollywood producer? You know, he wasn't one of those guys. No, he wasn't one of those guys, but he was a Hollywood producer. So he's the only person in cinema history who instigated his own projects that he then did hands-on the special effects for. So Willis O'Brien before him, who did King Kong and who predates Ray Harryhausen, he was brought on to facilitate the work on King Kong and he did it brilliantly. Um, but nobody else in film history other than Ray Harryhausen has been the producer and instigator of their own creative work in that way. So if you're Steven Spielberg and you need dinosaurs, you bring in the great people from Industrial Lice and Magic, Dennis Murin, Phil Tippett, there is no one better. But these guys aren't going out making their own movies. They're working with filmmakers like Spielberg, Lucas, James Cameron, and so on. Ray Harryhausen was the only person doing both, wearing both hats at the same time. You know, we play down or we don't talk about his film producer smarts, but getting a picture together, and 16 of them he did. Huge Having had two films in the cinema myself, I know what an absolute uphill struggle it is. It's like pushing a boulder up to the top of a hill, only for it to crush you when it gets to the top and rolls back on you. Mm. So Ray did that so many times. Um, and to think he had so many other films in him, you would need to have lived 10 lifetimes to have done all of those projects. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, lot, a lot of people that don't realise the amount of work and effort that goes into making a film are, you know, are, are TV series. And, you know, and, and you know, I, you know I, I, I'm really appreciative of, um, of, of the films and TV series that, that, that we do get, you know, the ones that we kind of grow to love. It's, um, you know, it's amazing work that, you know, Ray Harryhausen did. I mean, I, I prefer his version of Clash of the Titans than the remake because the remake just didn't really, the remake just, it just fell completely flat for me. Um, I don't know what it was. I don't, you know, not, don't know what the acting performances. I don't know whether it was because the, the CGI just looked like CGI. You know, it didn't really look, you know, it didn't really look real, but it didn't really look, you know, Whereas you see a Harryhausen creature and you can kind of, there's almost, there's a level of human intensity and the human emotion that he sort of imbued in, into the animations of his characters that kind of made you empathise with them. Even though you knew that they were, they were sort of like essentially the villains, you kind of empathised with them. You felt a little bit sorry for them when they got cut down. Well, you know, effectively... Harryhausen's creatures are created through the, him acting through his fingers. And because they exist in a physical space as well, our kind of brain registers that. When you have something like um, Clash of the Titans from 2010, the remake, you're going to have hundreds, if not thousands of people working on a sequence. So you end up getting this homogenized kind of performance through hundreds or thousands of, of, of interpretations and, and interactions with other animators and graphics people. Um, you know, I think in 2010, it looked okay. Now, when we look back at it, the computer graphics look a bit rudimentary. I think had it not been a Clash of the Titans remake, it was just a film about Greek myths, it might have done okay. Um, it certainly made lots of money, so it was successful commercially. But the great thing about it was that it pointed people back to the original 
And people said what you said. They went to the cinema, they paid their money, they saw it, and they were like, but I prefer Ray Harryhausen's one from 1981. And so it, it gave a, a revival, if you like, to Ray's film. Um, and then there was a sequel again. There was Wrath of the Titans, which, um, <laughs> which was less even successful uh, thematically and dramatically as Clash of the Titans uh, remake. But, um, you know, Hollywood has no shame or embarrassment in, in taking something and going over and over and over and over. If there's money to be squeezed out of it, then they will. But that's why the lost movies of Ray Harryhausen need to be looked at more seriously because mm -hmm. um, someone is going to pick that up, you know, whether it's... Um, good folk down at Disney or legendary pictures, you know, they'll, they'll take, pick up a copy of the book and flick through and think, we should be doing this. You know, I mean, June's been remade and it looks fine. The trailer of it looks okay. I mean, I love the David Lynch June from 1984. Um, I'm a big fan of that. So I'm curious to see what's happening with the new June. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm worried from the trailer that I'm going to be slightly disappointed, but um, I'm going to kind of reserve judgment. I like Timothy Chalamet. I think he's an excellent choice for mm -hmm. Paula Trades. Yeah, they've done Dune so many times now already, though. I mean, the Sci-Fi Channel did, did a cheap miniseries back in the day. Yeah. I'd say cheap, it probably cost them a few million. But yeah. in terms of, um, of a movie production budget, it would have been cheap. Um, but they, they did it, and I'm not sure how that went down well. I mean, you mean Dune... The, the David was it David Lynch Dune? Yes, David Lynch, nineteen eighty four, and Dino De Laurentiis as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember seeing that, and um, I was a very young teenager at the time, and didn't understand a single part of it. But I revisited it a few years later, and I I kind of got the gist of it then. It was yeah. um, it's I think it's one of those films that you you learn to appreciate or right, gradually over time the more you see it. I read the book at school. And uh, so I was very, very familiar with it. So when the narration starts, you see the emperor's daughter at the beginning, and she's she's basically going through who the people are, House of Trades, House, House Arconan, and the, and, and, and the kind of politics, she's setting it up. I already knew that. So for me, it was fine. Whereas my friends were saying, oh, that girl who comes on in the front and was giving you all these different names, and within the Fremen, he has a different name because he's, he's Paul Moadib, not Paul Atreides. And I was like, yeah, I, I knew that. If you didn't go in with that hardwired into your brain, it was too much information. Mm -hmm. And, and Dino Laurentiis said that the studio made him cut what was going to be a three-hour film down to a two-hour picture or just over two hours. And he said he regretted um, the pressure from the studio to do that. You know, if we think about The Godfathers, part one and two in the 1970s, those films, which are terrific, they're very long. They're three hours or so. And so audiences did tolerate sitting in their seats for three hours. And those films were monstrously successful. So I think it's a real shame that the, the three-hour version of Dune wasn't allowed to have been um, put in theatres. I have seen it, the three-hour version. Um, it's not necessarily any better. Uh, it's just longer. But it's still mm. a good film. I like it. Yeah, um, I noticed that you're wearing a, a Logan's Run T-shirt. Is that another book? Is that another book? book. But it's an unofficial Logan's Run T-shirt. Look, there we go. Um, but it's a great film. I love that film with... Um, Michael um, York. Michael York, Jenny Agatha. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 such a good film, such a good film. Mm -hmm. I've got a soft spot for the TV series as well, which was nowhere near as good. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah, and the Hollywood trying to remake. They did the same, didn't they? Um, uh, uh, the Planet of the Apes. I remember that being on Saturday morning television. Mm. Yeah, they just couldn't. They couldn't really pull it off the same way on, on as episodic television, unfortunately, but. You know, but all, all good films. I mean, you know, I love the Planet of the Apes, the originals. Um, but I thought the remakes were really good. The, the trilogy, 
And I think that they, they did the right thing by just keeping it as a trilogy. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that really worked. Um, anyway, uh, John, I'd like to thank you for your time. It's been absolutely brilliant speaking with you. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can do this again when you get when you have another book coming out. Well, happy to come back on. If when you get a copy of um, Escape from New York, the official story of the film in September, I'd be happy to come on. And you can ask me whatever you like um, about that. So it would be uh, good to speak to you and to all your listeners. And if people want to find out more about me, they can go onto my website, johnwalshfilmmaker.com. And they can follow me at Walsh Bros on uh, on Twitter. They can ask me questions and uh, send me nice comments. Yeah, well, it's, it's been 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 great talking to you. It's, it's just sort of like it's just like speaking to a fellow fan, really. Of, uh, of all that's the it. I'm a fanboy. That's why I am. You know, great. and that's why I like writing these books, making these films, because I am I am a fanboy. Um, anyway, um, everyone, that's John Walsh. Um, he's got a uh, three books out: um, Harry Housen, The Lost Movies. Um, Flash Gordon what's the title Flash Gordon now is it just Flash Gordon Flash Gordon the official story of the film and Escape from New York um, which is the coming official out the story of the film which comes out in September 22nd I think 28th 28th yeah. I was close yeah, pre-order now on Amazon it's available now to pre-order everywhere yeah I already have mate <laughs> <laughs> good lad okay Anyway, thanks for speaking with us. It's great having you on, and um, you know we we'd love to do this again with you. Thank you. Bye. Bye now.